I don't know about you, but I don't fly very much, so I don't get all the perks that come with flying a lot, all the upgrades and things. What I mean by that is like, you know, some of you, you fly first class. That's how you roll. And then there's business class. That's how maybe some others roll. And then there's coach. And then there's me, which is very coach. And it doesn't say that on my ticket, but it's just trust me, it's very coach. And a couple months ago, I had to take a flight last minute to the West Coast. And I was, you know, went online to book my seats and there was nothing left except middle seats. How many of you know the middle seats are the worst seats, right? Because you're going to be sandwiched between two total strangers, both of whom feel entitled to the armrests on either side of you. You're just going to have to suffer through it. So I'm making my way down the aisle of the plane and I get to my seat and there's an older man sitting in the window seat and an older woman sitting in the aisle seat. And and there's me right in the middle. So I get in my seat. And usually when I fly, I just kind of start working immediately. Like I'll pull out my laptop, start usually to write a message or something, but I'll start working, put my headphones in. And about 20 minutes into this flight, I realize that this, this whole thing had been orchestrated with great purpose because the, the woman on my right passes an iPad to the man on my left. And then the man passes a book over to the woman on my right. And I realize these two are together. But they have booked their seats with an open seat in between, thinking surely no one will be desperate enough to book that lonely middle seat. Well, here I am, the lonely middle seat guy, busting up their plans. And this continued the whole flight, so much so that I just became part of the transactions. You know, like every few minutes I'd be typing and I'd get a nudge and something would come across and I'd get another nudge and I'd pass. It was everything from books, iPads, Headphones, water bottles, snacks, neck pillows, all of it, the whole flight. I learned their names, Marge and Don. And eventually, Don leans over to Marge and he goes, Hey, Marge, do you have my toenail clippers? (laughs) Now, how many of you know there are things you can do on a flight and then things you absolutely should not do on a flight, right? And toenail clipping has to be on the list. It should make the list. It should be part of the pre-flight instructions. Like the, the flight attendant should say, you know, there's no moving about the cabin when the fasten seatbelt sign is on. There's no dismantling the bathroom smoke detectors. And there's absolutely no clipping your toenails, Don. Don. Thankfully, Marge had not packed Don's toenail clippers, so crisis averted there. But how many of you agree? There are just things you should not do on an airplane. And and how many of you would agree that should translate into life too, right? Well, one of Jesus's closest friends was a guy named Peter, and, and he had some lines that he would not cross in his life, just like there are lines you should not cross on an airplane. And so Peter had been good friends with Jesus as, you know, during his whole time in ministry, And had these lines he wouldn't cross, but it was only until he realized they were the wrong lines. And so for the last few weeks, we've been in a series on the book of Acts where we're talking about encountering the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to wrap it all up by looking at the 10th chapter of Acts. It's a chapter that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it's a passage about Peter and a Roman military leader that has significant implications for you and me. This is a really important passage, and you'll, you'll, you'll see why. But in Acts 10, we read at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. 
He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Peter. When the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So here these men go to look for Peter in Joppa. And, and while Peter, while they were on their way, Peter happened to be praying on a rooftop, rooftop. And while he was praying, he became hungry. So he went downstairs. And as the meal was being prepared, Peter had a vision. And it was a vision of a sheet being lowered from heaven with all kinds of animals on it. And he heard a voice tell him to eat. But Peter was a devout Jewish man. And there were lots of dietary restrictions for the Jews. Basically, they would only eat meat if it was ceremonially clean. This was, they were very serious about this. It just happened to be one of those lines they did not cross. So Peter said, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time saying, do not call anything impure that the Lord has made clean. And as Peter was contemplating what had just happened to him, what the spirit had said, the three men that the spirit told him, there are three men who are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them for I have sent them. Now, this is important information because without this direction, Peter probably would have tried to avoid them. These were Greek soldiers. This was all happening at a time when the Christians were heavily persecuted. So as a follower of Jesus, Peter probably would have been afraid to go with him. But as a good Jewish man, Peter would have avoided any contact with non-Jewish people or Gentiles. They were very strict about this. It was another line they did not cross. But God had told him to go with them, so Peter did. The next day, Peter arrived at Cornelius' house, and when he did, the text tells us this. It says, Peter went inside, found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, now for centuries, the Jews had used ritual purification as a reason not to associate with entire nations of people. It was very important to them. And through the life and ministry of Jesus, it was as if God was saying to them, you may have missed my point. You may have your lines in the wrong place. Yes, it's true that God wanted his people to be pure. All the way back in Leviticus, we see a verse that Peter would later quote in one of his letters. It says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. But there are 37 verses in that 19th chapter of Leviticus, and only one of them deals with non-Jewish people. And the one that does says this, when a foreigner resides among you, do not mistreat them. Now, the word mistreat in Hebrew is yana. It means to oppress through pride. It was as if God was saying, when you find yourself around people who are not part of your family, don't assume that they are not part of my family. That's important. And it was in this moment recorded in Acts 10 where something came into focus for Peter. So with this in mind, Peter told this group of Greek people about Jesus, who he was, his life, his death, his resurrection. And while he was doing that, the text tells us that the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard him. And after staying with them a few more days, Peter then returned home where 
he took some heat for what he had done, that he had spent time with and shared the message of Jesus with these people and, and seen the Holy Spirit come upon them. So the Jews, that his friends, they gave him an earful about it, like reminding him, you're not supposed to hang out with Gentiles. So Peter broke it down for him, told him the whole story about the sheep, the animals, everything God had shown him. And then Peter told them about how these non-Jewish people responded in faith and God had given them the Holy Spirit. And his Jewish friends responded like this. They said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted the repentance that leads to life. Now that's important because most of us hearing this today, we're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. So this is great news for us. There's a lot in this 10th chapter of Acts, but if I, if I could point you towards one thing, it would be this. It all began with two words. He saw. He saw. As Peter saw what was happening, he began to understand something new about God, about himself, and about other people. And how was it? How was it that Peter, who had been a good Jewish man all his life, who had spent more time with Jesus than almost anyone else, was now able to see something that he'd never seen before? It was because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit showed him something. Let me give you an analogy just to help paint the picture. When I can't surf in the mornings, I usually go for a run. And it, lately, you know, like 536 in the morning, it's really dark outside. So I have to take this with me, just a little headlamp. It's not much, but it projects just enough light for me to be able to see what's on the path in front of me. Even though it's the same path that I run every day, like there might be something new on the path. You know, a branch could have fallen down overnight that could trip me up. Or sometimes there's slithery things on the path. Or sometimes the light hits these eyes of animals looking back at me. I want them to see me coming. So they'll run away into the woods. So this is very helpful for me. It helps me to see what I would otherwise be unable to see. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit makes us aware of things that we would otherwise be incapable of seeing, which is really important in a world full of things that can trip us up. So if I could break it down, when you wonder, what, what's the Holy Spirit all about? To break it down in the simplest of terms, the Holy Spirit helps us to see. That's all he does. He helps us to see. And specifically, the Holy Spirit helps us to see God as he is. The Holy Spirit helps us to see others for who they are. And the Holy Spirit helps us to see ourselves for who we are. And that's our outline for today. So let's look at that first one. And if you, if you want to follow along, you can jump on the Seacoast app. All the points are there. All the references are there. But let's talk about how the Holy Spirit helps us to see God as he is. God understood how difficult it would be for us finite creatures with a beginning and an end to wrap our minds around the God who has no beginning and no end. And so to help us with that, this is where each person of the Trinity collaborate together for our benefit. The Holy Spirit was given to help us see what we couldn't otherwise see. Effectively, the Holy Spirit became a spotlight so that we could see God himself. And the way that God decided to reveal himself most clearly was through the person of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit becomes a spotlight on Jesus in the New Testament. 
Everyone we meet in the New Testament had to answer the same question. From the Pharisees to the fishermen, they all had to decide if they were willing to take a look, an honest look at who Jesus was. And generally speaking, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they were not. They were locked up in what they thought, thought they already knew to be true about God. On the other hand, the fishermen were open to God possibly being bigger than they thought. And it was the fishermen who were changed forever. It was the fishermen who God used to change the world. The fishermen, the ordinary people, became quite extraordinary. Peter would later write this down in one of his letters when he said, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And in John 4, we meet a, a Samaritan woman. In every way, this woman was an outsider. And culturally speaking, Jesus should never have even talked with her. But, but how many of you know Jesus does not care much for what is culturally popular? So he has a conversation with this woman that would change her life forever. And she ran back to her community with these words. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? And we need to know that something very important happens when we are willing to wrestle with those words. Could this be three words that changed her life forever? Three words that changed my life forever. And at some point, we all have to be willing to wrestle with those words. Could this be? Are we willing to admit that Jesus might be bigger than we thought? Are we willing to admit that our preconceptions of him might in fact be misconceptions? Are we willing to consider that he might actually be the one who makes life make sense? How many of you would agree that life is filled with irony? Anybody agree with that statement? It's all around us every day, all the time. Here's what I mean. When you're young, you sneak out of your home to go to parties. And when you're old, you sneak out of parties to go to your home. <laughs> it's true, right? You know. Yeah. How about this one? Babysitters are teenagers that behave like grown-ups so that grown-ups can go out and behave like teenagers. <laughs> Got a testimony or two, I know. How about this one? We all know it's important to be extra kind to expecting mothers, but every single one of us has kicked a pregnant woman at one time or another. Nudge your neighbor if you're confused. They'll get it straight for you. How about this one? Many of us are in therapy to learn how to deal with people who should be in therapy. Yeah, Thanksgiving is coming, I know. But here is the greatest irony of our world. You'll never find anything more ironic than this. For thousands of years, we have been pursuing truth without realizing that for thousands of years, the truth has been pursuing us. In John 14, we are reminded that Jesus is the way, the life, and the truth. And for those who would be daring enough to ask the question, who is God? They need to look no further than his son, Jesus. Paul reminds us that he is the visible image of the invisible God. And the writer of Hebrews says it like this. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So this is what the Holy Spirit 
is all about. This is the ultimate goal of the Holy Spirit, to turn on the lights for us about the true identity of Jesus, because to fully understand Jesus is to understand God himself. So the Holy Spirit helps us to see who God is, but the Holy Spirit also helps us to see who others are. Throughout Jesus's ministry, you know this, but he had lots of interactions with people that confused the disciples. They didn't understand why he would talk with a Samaritan woman. They didn't understand why he would eat with a tax collector. They didn't understand why he would show mercy to an adulterer. But every time he did something like this, he forced them to consider, maybe we've been wrong. Maybe our lines are in the wrong place. And this came together for Peter in Acts 10 when he saw God pour out the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. From that moment on, God knew, or Peter knew, that God was much bigger than he thought. That Jesus was not only the Savior of Israel, but in fact, he was the Savior of the whole world. It was in that moment where Peter realized that God's table was much bigger than he'd thought. This idea of God's table, it's a word picture in Hebrew. It, it's meant to convey a relationship with God. And some of us have thought that God's table is for other people, but not for us. It's for better people, more spiritual people, people without so much baggage, but not for us. Honestly, I used to think that about God as a teenager. The thought of God made me afraid. Thought he probably is not psyched about my life, so we should probably just stay away from each other. Until someone helped me to take an honest look at him. After spending months with me, answering my questions, which were relentless, by the way, he helped me to understand who God was. And eventually I asked if he would pray with me to receive Christ. And he agreed. And when he did, he gave me a Bible. Now, the Bible he gave me has long since fallen apart, but I saved the cover of it. It's just an old paperback Bible because he wrote something to me on the inside of it. I put it inside the Bible that I first bought for myself. The very first one is pretty beat up by now, but I highlighted the same two verses in this one that he highlighted in the Bible he gave me. Here are those verses, John 1:12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And 2 Corinthians 5:17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Three decades later, I now know through his word, through the person of Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit that God's table is much bigger than I'd realized. Because no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God has a seat for you at his table. You know, you may think I got my life all together. Maybe everything is going great. Let me tell you, there's a seat for you because No amount of success will ever earn you a seat at God's table. If you think your life is a total disaster, there's a seat for you because no amount of failure will ever keep you from God's table. It gets better. If you're a liar, there's a seat for you. If you're an adulterer, there's a seat for you. If you're an addict, there's a seat for you. If you're a convict, There's a seat for you. If you should be a convict, there's a seat for you. 
If you've ever hurt somebody, there's a seat for you. If you've ever been hurt by somebody, there's a seat for you. If you're a Republican, there's a seat for you. If you're a Democrat, there's a seat for you. If you're black or white or any shade in between, there's a seat for you. You see, the seat is not there because of who you are or who you are not. The seat is there because of who God is. And some would have us believe that this seat is free. This seat is not free. This seat was freely given, meaning we did nothing to earn it. But this seat is not free. In fact, it was quite expensive. But knowing we could never pay for this seat, God paid for it himself. With the life of his son, Jesus, God paid for us to have a seat at his table. And even though this seat has already been paid for, it will still cost us something. In fact, this seat will cost us everything. Because for us to have a seat at God's table, something has to happen. You see, we must lower ourselves into a new position. We must lower ourselves as the authority of our lives. And recognize that God is the true authority of our lives. In the kingdom of heaven, the way up is down. Now, some of you may be thinking, I've heard all this before. But okay, Adam, I hear you saying there's a seat for me. And I'm ready to take my seat. I'm ready to begin that relationship with God. What I'd like to ask you to do is to pray with me. I'm going to ask everybody here online at our campuses just to bow your heads in a minute. And for those of you who are ready to take your seat at God's table, I want you to just look back at me. Raise your head and look at me as we pray. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you paid for us to have a seat at your table a seat we could never earn on our own. But nonetheless, you have provided that we might be called children of God. Lord, let us live into the identity that has always been true of us, even if we've not been able to see it. We thank you. Give us courage to take these next steps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, some of you have just made a decision that's going to change the trajectory of the rest of your life. You will look back at this moment and say, I remember when and everything changed for me. Notice I did not say everything became easy for me. I wish I could tell you that that's not how it works. But you now realize you are a blood bought, fully redeemed child of the king that changes things. And if that's you, I want to invite you to take one more step. Just text the word faith to 320-320. We're not going to blow you up with emails. We're too busy for that. But we would love to encourage you. We would love to send you some ideas of what it looks like to take your next steps in your faith. The worst thing you could do right now is make this decision and tell nobody. So let us know that you've made this decision. We would love to help out however we can. So... The Holy Spirit 
helps us to see God as he is. The Holy Spirit helps us to see others for who they are. And finally, the Holy Spirit helps us to see ourselves for who we are. When Peter saw this vision and saw God give the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, he was faced with something that had been hard for him to see before. That God had not only imprinted himself upon the Jewish people, but that God had imprinted himself upon all people. How many of you remember taking biology class? Yeah? So only about half of you took biology. That's scary. <laughs> In biology, we studied living things, molecules, cells, all that stuff. And you may remember that each of us started out as just one living cell, just one tiny cell in our mother's womb. And as you grew and developed, that cell divided and reproduced and adhered to other cells. And now as adults, you've now progressed from one tiny cell to nearly 40 trillion cells. Go ahead, give yourselves a hand. You did it. Way to go. 40 trillion cells. In fact, there are more cells in your body now than there are the number of seconds in a million years. There are more cells in your body than there are the number of stars in the entire Milky Way galaxy. And your adult body can do what it does because all of those cells have joined together to enable complex functioning. But have you ever wondered how any of that happens? It's fascinating. In our bodies, there's a cell adhesion protein called laminin. Laminin has always been there. It's always been a part of our bodies. We just didn't know about it until around 40 years ago. Laminin is what makes it possible for our cells to hold together. Without it, our cells couldn't form and survive. And in 1979, science and technology finally advanced to the point where we could observe laminin in the human body. And before I show you a picture of what it looks like, let me read to you something that was written 2,000 years ago. Paul says this, the sun is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And hear this, in him, all things hold together. That's what Paul said about Jesus, that in him, we are held together. And at the microscopic level, this is what laminin, the protein that holds our bodies together, looks like. I want to be fair to all the skeptics and the critics out there. The non-Christian community reacted pretty strongly to those that said laminin looks like a cross. It's not a cross. It's not a cross they fired back. I mean, I'm not a molecular biologist, but I did okay with my shapes. <laughs> and while some in the science community insist this is not a cross, Others in the science community reminded them that this is a three-dimensional molecule inside a three-dimensional body. So yes, there will be moments when our electron microscopes take a snapshot and it looks nothing like a cross because it's sideways or it's angled. 
And I don't really have a dog in this fight. I'm just an observer here. But I do know that scientists create illustrations of every known molecule for the purpose of continued learning. And when the scientists got together at the science meeting, wherever that was, this is how they decided to illustrate laminin. Here's what I want to point out. Regardless of what you think about the picture of laminin under a microscope, this illustration was a choice. They didn't have to illustrate laminin this way. But the scientists agreed that the most fair and accurate way to represent the molecule that holds our bodies together should look like this. For centuries, God has been telling us who we are. And every now and then, science catches up with that revelation. There are traces of God's fingerprints within our physical bodies, 40 trillion of them. We can resist it and fire back. Those are not his fingerprints. Or we can find the courage to ask, could this be? Could this be? Could this be the one we've been waiting for? Could this be the one who helps me make sense of who I am? Could this be the one who can help me find the life I've been searching for? I want to wrap this up with just one thought. We find ourselves at an interesting moment economically. Everything costs way more than it used to. Inflation is affecting everything we buy. And it forces us to really consider what something is worth, right? We're all asking ourselves that question. And the answer to the question is the same as it's always been. What's something worth? Only what someone's willing to pay for it. What's a house worth? Only what someone's willing to pay for it. What's a car worth? Only what someone is willing to pay for it. And if that's true, and we know that it is, then the only way we can answer the question about ourselves is to consider what someone was willing to pay for us. In order for us to fully understand who we are, in order for us to fully understand our true value and worth, we will have to look at what God was willing to pay for us. And John answers that question. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Just one final quote here. This is what the Holy Spirit helps us to see. This reality. The Holy Spirit brings this wonderful mystery that is God to us. The Spirit of God is our teacher, and if he does not teach us, we can never know. The Spirit of God is our illuminator, and if he does not turn on the light, we can never see. The Spirit of God is the healer of our deaf ears, and if he does not touch our ears, we can never hear. The Holy Spirit comes bearing all these gifts and asks only that we listen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you have turned on the lights that we might see we were made to sit at your table. 
Lord, help us to get up from the seats we've made for ourselves, the ones that will never satisfy us. And help us to take our seat in relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.